Aren't we overdue another comeback from Shaggy? Who's everyone going to hate now they've lost Maggie? Last week with our special guest Izzy Sooty, we talked about uh, how did casting directors broach the subject of looking for somebody who's maybe not conventionally attractive <laughs> or shapely. You're being too kind. You're being too kind. Well, with the I'm way not you're a casting director. No. When casting directors are looking for ugly fatos, <laughs> how do they do it? Yeah. Well, yeah. Sarah from Oklahoma has been in touch to say, "I've worked in a really successful casting office for the past four years. We did a job where we were looking for plus size ladies to wear bikinis in mid October for a film, Ooh. and all we said were sizes, something along the lines of, we're looking for women between sizes 16 to 20 for a bikini shoot.'" You'd be surprised how many ladies were all for it. No, I wouldn't. You no. don't get many casting calls saying, we're looking for ladies size 16 to 20 to play Ophelia, do you? So when one <laughs> comes along saying anything, of course they're going to apply. Sarah says, we've also had casting calls for uglies, mm. circus freaks and giants. And I think there's a point in people's lives when they just become okay with the fact that they're considered ugly. I think even if you're the person describing yourself like that, you're not really saying this is how I see myself. You're saying I'm aware this is how others see me and I'm in a profession where others will judge me based on how I look. It's a selling point. Yeah. Well, Sarah says people who don't care or who are okay with it are the ones who submit to yeah, us. Yeah, well, I think that's right. So not insecure uglies. Well, yes, but then you get things like dwarf actors, don't you? Where you think, okay, these people might be comfortable with the fact they've got dwarfism. They might be comfortable with the fact they're going to have to play, you know, the dwarf in Snow yeah. White and the Seven Dwarfs. They're but reconciled to it. Exa- they're reconciled to it, but they'd probably rather be playing Laertes. That's the thing. Sarah also has a question. She says, answer me this, Ollie. Who were your childhood heroes? Philip Schofield. Good choice. Um, because I wanted to be a presenter and also he was mates with Gordon the Gopher in my mind, so that's cool. Was it Philip Schofield who had to actually operate Gordon the Gopher? No, absolutely God, not. God, no. That's, that's, the strict no-touching clause very, in the broom cupboard. <laughs> you know, there's a very serious art to portraying a puppet with that much character and charisma for a younger audience, Helen. You can't expect someone to present a live TV show at the same time. But it's a very small studio. I didn't really have heroes. I've never really been the kind of person that has role models. Or no, even, it shows. Or even, shows. I know. I've, I've steered my own course. Uh, however what I aspired to be when I was little because it seemed like the most kind of unobtainable thing Mm. was to be a backing singer on top of the pops no, that's a nice, modest uh, ambition, yeah. I would say. Well, I wasn't showy then, I was shy. Look at me now. Yeah, you're not the backing singer, you're front of stage, aren't you? I'm Jerry Halliwell now. around, entering through a massive pair of legs like she did at the Brits. Ugh. Do you remember that? Yep, of course, Jerry everyone remembers that one, the iconic Brits moments. Yeah, except with a rubbish song, unfortunately. Which one was it? It was, look at me. Oh, was it? I thought it was Bag It Up. Oh, really? Yeah. No, because then she'd be entering through a massive bag, surely. <laughs> It'd be a giant colostomy bag split to the bag middle. Bag it up, chop up the body. Don't <laughs> leave no trace clean with bleach. Uh, did you have any heroes, Martin? I think probably most of my heroes were completely fictional. Like either they're characters in science fiction TV shows. Like, like Commander Makara, or maybe like Greek heroes. Maybe like Really? Um, maybe like Hercules or something. That's yeah. not very West Midlands type of ambition. Everyone always picks the ancient Greek heroes, don't they? No one ever, no one ever goes for a modern day... Well, Cypras or... Stelios. <laughs> You know, whereas he's a very successful entrepreneur. Ariana Huffington. Yeah, exactly. Hi, Helen and Ollie. This is Dallas. Um, I just had a question. So my mom recently bought a resort, and there's a simple job that I can do this summer. It's just like driving. It's like a camping resort, and it's just like giving people wood and stuff like that. Giving people wood. <laughs> giving people wood. <laughs> if Dallas's guests don't get wood, will he get into trouble? I'm sure he would, because I'll have nothing to keep them warm at night. But I'll be making 
$6,000 for that summer, but I'll be working every day all summer, and that's in between school. So Helen and Ollie, answer me this. Should I take the job, or should I just stay home this summer? Should I just stay at home? What's the benefit? That's going to be boring compared to working the campsite. I know you'll be shunting around wood, but it will furnish you with anecdotes and uh, possible mm. sexual experiences to amuse you for decades of your life thereafter. And you could make a misty-eyed coming-of-age film yeah, about it. Yeah, have you not seen Dirty Dancing? Could you be just like that, but with more wood? More wood than watermelons. You're not going to be using the time more wisely than that. I reckon you should go for it. And also you'll be in the outdoors. You, as long as you don't have to stay in a tent all summer, because that would suck. But as you say, it, almost certainly there's going to be a trade in hot youngsters coming through legal ones yeah you mean i do yes yeah holiday romance exactly you can you can feel the the sort of sweaty excitement can't you that this job may hold mm. and if not at least you will get to grips with a lot of wood <laughs> <laughs> there is a romance yeah. around camp isn't there yes especially american camp that's a not, different not the kind gulags. of <laughs> which mm. which you, which is special to that kind of experience which is actually i think exactly the kind of thing you should do when you're in a break at school i think you should go for it I, did you ever go to a camp uh, well they didn't really have camps like they do in america when i was young D- did you not even go to like do your, your school didn't run a sort of half day thing where you got to go and play thing. archery day doesn't count well it does it still counts yes i did silversmithing i did oil painting i did trampolining right. did you do those things at the same time <laughs> on the silversmithing course i did set fire to my hair with a blowtorch but not deliberately wow how well, just back into a blowtorch i had very long hair at the time what happened just smelt <laughs> burnt hair for a while but i mean how 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 in flame did it get well the flame looked very impressive Ollie. the flame was about three feet high but wow. the amount of hair that went up was minimal it's interesting though isn't it how michael jackson went one way after setting fire to his hair you know getting addicted to plastic surgery yeah. and becoming one of the all-time great weirdos you went another went a different way silversmithing had a spoon to finish <laughs> if only michael jackson had a spoon to finish then instead he of never... an album <laughs> yeah. dangerous would have never happened and everything yeah. would be fine but what would he have done with that spoon on? he would have you put it in mother's silver cabinet for serving salt at special occasions it was quite a small spoon in the end because uh, silversmithing is uh, quite difficult especially when it has on fire uh, here's a question from Christine from Canberra uh, which she's described as Australia's bush capital Whoa. women oh, wow. do not shave there this is a brilliant episode <laughs> she says I need a man to bring me wit uh, she says she says we thought we had possums in our roof making lots of noise uh, but the pest guy who came out to remove them corrected us and said we had rats and put down some poison in the roof cavity to kill them. Uh, I asked the possum rat man about dead (laughs) bodies lying around the place and he assured us that the poison gives them a raging thirst. Rats, not Christine's victims. Correct. And then they'd leave the property in search of water and die. That sounds a little too convenient. That's quite clever, actually, isn't it? If that is how poisoning works. If it is. Uh, Unfortunately, one rat didn't make it out and appears to have died in our roof space where we can't access its body, Mm -hmm. which seems to be above my 10-year-old's daughter's bedroom. Well, she's going to have a complex, isn't she? Yeah. And the noxious smell has made the room uninhabitable. Yeah. Decomposition is not a tasty smell. (laughs) So, Helen, answer me this. How long do dead rats stink for? Mm Mm-hmm. When will the smell dissipate and my daughter can return to her own bed? The smell has been there for five days and seems to have incredible staying power. Yeah, well, you do have a rotten corpse just above her room and it may take uh, a month. Some rats dry out after a week, but if it's humid, don't know how humid Canberra is. If there's like a, a water pipe or steam in the loft, 
then uh, it could it could take a month and even then the lingering stench of decay may last for a really long time and also it might drip through your daughter's ceiling so the ideal thing really would be to remove the rat body because also maggots could start (laughs) oozing out of it and you do not want that but she said she can't access it so what do you propose try harder the rats got in so you can get (laughs) in and also you do need to find how the rats got in and block it off yeah that's true apparently you can get um air cleaners that filter stench out of the air Mm. There's still a decaying rat body just above your daughter's sleeping head. Yeah, but there was that woman who died, wasn't there, in Wood Green, and no one knew she was there for two and a half years. Oh, yeah. So if you can't smell a decomposing 40-something woman, then actually maybe the rat smell isn't as bad. Maybe it will fade over time. Well, there's a comfort, isn't it? <laughs> and then maybe a very interesting docudrama will be made out of it starring Zowie Ashton as the rat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Dare to dream. If you've got a question... Here's a question from Tigger in Brighton who says, My friend Jade and I went on the Brighton Pier today and went into the gambling bit with the grabbing machines and coin thingamajigs where we wasted lots of money. Just as we were leaving, says Tigger, I asked my friend Jade if she could have a go for me at the grabbing machines because I am completely incompetent at the grabbing machines. Right. To my surprise, she won the teddy. Wow. She won the teddy? Yeah. Does she say how many times she's done it? No. That's amazing. After picking it up, I took it from her, but soon things got complicated. As Jade said, it was rightfully hers. Whoa. Ollie answered me this. Who should actually have ownership of the teddy? I did give her the money for it, and she did agree to do it for me, even though she did the work. I believe it's rightfully mine. She's attached a picture of the teddy, which looks like... Uh, a terrifying so, monster. Like a sort of satanic fetus. <laughs> yeah. That, to be honest, has not helped Tigger. That's, uh, that's confused the issue, because yeah. you, you would wonder why... Why would you, you want yeah, it? It's terrifying. It's awful. Um, but I think, basically, what you're describing here is capitalism, isn't it? You outsourced yeah. the grabbing. You should have had a contract in place, yeah. Tigger, before you did the grabbing. She's so, been unionised. On acceptance of the fee, I claim rights over anything resulting from the grab. In the contract. Yes. Because everyone goes to Brighton Pier with contracts, don't they? It's a, <laughs> I, I disagree. I don't think she needed it in writing. I, I can see that if it ever went to well, court, that might be the case. It would have been so much easier now if she'd just done the paperwork beforehand. But, if, <laughs> but nonetheless, I think there was a fairly clear verbal agreement there. Here's the money. You're doing it on my behalf. Have fun. Because she was doing it, your friend, because it is quite a laugh, isn't it, using the grabbing machine? You were paying for her fun. But then the, the rewards of that job were very clearly yours. You paid for them. You commissioned her. Yeah. And I think that's the verbal agreement that happened. I think it's a bit odd, though, that you would ask someone else to do the grabber machine for you because the prize is not worth having. So really the only joy in it, surely, is to see whether you can beat the system, which has made it so that it's virtually impossible to grab something. Yes. So you can't outsource the grabbing no, I disagree. I think you can outsource the grabbing. I think the joy is in the winning, not in the controlling no, of the claw. But for Tigger, the joy is is it's very much results driven process rather than the process driven process. Yeah. She's only after the end result. There's a mismatch of philosophy there. Well, well there? I, I, I disagree. I think she's getting off on the fact that she won. I think the fact that but it's she, a teddy is irrelevant. She didn't win. She paid 
for someone else. It still counts. It's like whoever. That's how how you win on the stock exchange. No, isn't but it? if you... you commission someone to go in there on your behalf and yeah, buy up stock. But if you had put Mo Farah through running training yes. since he was a child. And then yeah, he it would be all... him that wins the exactly. race. Exactly. You wouldn't think, right, those medals, they're mine. It's a, yeah, po- but it's a collective effort, though. Cut uh, the bear in half. I, th- I think that's the problem. The bear's indivisible. Normally, the capitalist would take a cut of the worker's value. It wouldn't take 100%. Well, or Tigger could percent. take the head. But that, 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 that defeats the object of the output. No, no, no. Because it, no using, one wins. Using the Formula 1 analogy, Team Tigger gets a lot of plaudits for having put the money in and invested in the talent that could use the claw. Yeah. Okay, at the point that the prize is won, Team Tigger has, has done a PR exercise for themselves and they should feel gratified with that. They've beaten other teams that were using the clawing machine. But I think if Tigger gets the bear now, it's going to be tainted. It's going to spoil the friendship, which I think is more valuable from, than this awful bear. Well, yeah, the fact that it's not a particularly attractive toy does no. really... And you'll look into its devilish eyes and think... <laughs> Was it worth all the heartache just for you, you little furry monster? Although, actually, if we're talking about terrifying claw-grabbing games, uh, (laughs) one that I've seen on the internet, they do it at the main lobster festival with a live lobster tank. What? Yeah, so you can pick your lobster to be cooked and eaten using a claw. Oh. Isn't that horrible? It's a bit perverse, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the whole choosing your lobster, I think, anyway... Pretty rank. Yeah. It is depressing, but it's bad enough that they're just waiting there to die. They don't know but that, though. To then have a terrifying final moment where a claw comes hurtling I think it's you. so much of a muchness. I mean, if you're going to eat a, a living creature, I mean, a creature that was living once... Why not turn it into a game? Well, you may as well embrace the experience. You well, know, that's like, kind of what hunting is, it. isn't it? That is what hunting well, is. Well, yeah. Except and it is a bit wrong. Whereas that's like lobster yeah. death row. It's not really... You're, yeah. <laughs> you're, not, you're not really hunting a lobster if it's stationary in a tank and exactly, you're Exactly, you're going to win. Someone's already had the fun of hunting the lobsters yeah. with a lobster pot. It's bullfighting, basically, isn't it? Either way, you win, really. Bullfighting a lobster would be quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. With a claw on your head. I'm Humphrey, and on the Twitters, I follow at Helen and Ollie. I should clarify, when I say at, I I don't mean the preposition at. I mean one of those A's with a little surrounding circle of the sort that used to designate the price of fruit. Perfect. Well, it's that time of the show where we like to take a question on the phone line, the number for which is... 0208123 Or you can Skype answer me this and just leave us a message like this person has done. Hi, this is Rebecca from Brisbane in Australia. Helen and Ollie, answer me this. I was at my niece's birthday party and they had fairy bread, which is hundreds and thousands... Um, or I think you might call them sprinkles on bread. What are and how do they make hundreds and thousands? There are so many different colors that would have to be made individually, and they're so small that surely putting a coating on would make them stick together. Um, it's just really confusing me. Bizarrely, I never heard the term hundreds and thousands at any point during my childhood. It doesn't surprise me because there are a lot of uh, linguistic terms that you're unaware of even now. Well, that's true, but I, I think what it is is, is hundreds and thousands a brand or is it just a type of thing? It's It's the... 
type of thing. Yeah, so that's the thing. And I, because it hadn't been advertised at Young Ollie Man through Children's ITV, you, I had no awareness wow, of it. You were totally brand-centric. Yes, whereas if Rolo had done a spin-off product yeah. called Hundreds and Thousands, I would have known all about it, been all over it. It would have been sure all over would. me. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been exquisite. It would have made a change from the usual youthful acne. <laughs> <laughs> it would have just been like the singing detective with Hundreds and Thousands all over my face. Uh, well, if Hundreds and Thousands haven't already been ruined for you by that image, they are a paste... Uh, made out of cornstarch and sugar and fat and that's extruded through a machine to make very thin strands like spaghetti and then they're shaken so they break up into lots of little bits and then they are sprayed with a kind of shellac which uh, has uh, glaze in it to make it all shiny and colourful and wax which would mean that they didn't stick together really if they're waxen okay so it is a labour intensive process, but if I'm hideously so for having, a, what is basically just a cake topping, it does not taste of anything either. It's rubbish. I'm not aware that Heston Blumenthal has done anything exciting with hundreds and thousands, but it's, it seems like the sort of thing he'd do. He what he would do is he would make an ice cream cone that was made out of mashed potato, and the hundreds and thousands would be colourful chipolatas. Yeah. Here is another question of sweet things from Johnny from Lincoln, who says, "When browsing my local sweet shop recently." I noticed that there are two completely different brands of sweets available called refreshers. Fuck off. This will not stand. Unbelievable. <laughs> oh, no. There are Barrett's refreshers, the chalky circular disc made out of fruity sherbet. Yes. Mm. And there are Swizzle's refreshers, chewy rectangular ones with the lemon sherbet centre. Oh, yeah, there are two types. You're right. Yeah. Sherbet being the common theme. Johnny says, I find this surprising given how possessive companies are these days about their brand names. Mm. Surely this is like two competing companies both selling a detergent called Fairy Liquid. Mm. There's probably a drugs company selling Fairy Liquid, isn't there? As well as the detergent company. Also, I bet if Alan Carr ever put out an aftershave, he'd call it that. Oh, no. (laughs) So, Ollie, answer me this. How can two competing brands have exactly the same name? And why didn't whoever had the name first sue the ass off the other? I have a feeling the reason as to the latter part of the question... (laughs) Tonight's gonna be a question about Matlow's. The the answer to the second part of the question, why didn't they see the arse off each other, is because... They don't make enough money out of selling 20p sweets. Au contraire, Helen. They're both million-pound turnover companies. Um, Million pounds is not that much for a sweet... No, no, not many millions. I can't remember, you know, tens of millions of pounds both of them make. Um, And they're both British companies, which is good, actually, isn't it? In this very retro nostalgic type market these are sweets though that no one outside britain would want to eat i have a feeling that barrett's the fizzy ones the fizzy ones barrett's has been bought and then bought again Mm -hmm. and then assumed as part of a larger group and then split off from cadbury's and then bought by someone else and it's been bought by so many people that actually they've never had time frankly to stop and sue anyone else yeah because there it seems like people only buy that company to then accrue some more sweet companies and then sell them to another sweet giant oh because they want some free sweets meanwhile uh the swizzles matlow factory the chewy uh, refreshers the chewy refreshers is still as far as i can tell owned by people related to the original matlow brothers yeah they still have a family factory that's run in Stockport. Here's a fact about Swizzles Matlow. They don't sue. Uh, they, <laughs> they, we could say whatever we like. They maintain a stick up a lip they, because their lips are glued together, together by chewy yeah, sweets. All of the refreshers. Uh, they get through a 20-ton tanker of sugar every day in their factory. Um, because both these sweets seem like really retro sweets, Yeah. Uh, is it even possible to know which one was first called Refresher? Well, I can't find that information, although I have found a date relating to the Matlow one. Which is the Chewy one, right? Which is the Chewy one. Yep. Uh, in 1955, mm-hmm. they relaunched Refreshers Whoa! as new Refreshers. 
Uh, None so, that pre-war refresher. So, <laughs> well, actually, that's a good point. They stopped production during the war. Yeah, because there wasn't any sugar. So therefore, it does actually tell you that the original refresher brand, if they were relaunching in 55, must be from the 20s or 30s. That's how far it goes back. And it started as a family business, two of them selling them in a market stall in Hackney. Mm. So I think, therefore, with that kind of brand, actually, it is quite difficult, isn't it, to sue and say, well, we got here first. I mean, it doesn't really... Two people could have had the same idea for the name. It's quite a basic well, name, isn't it? Obviously, I think it'd be problematic if you launched a bar that was called a Mars bar that was nothing like a Mars bar. I think Mars would take issue with the name. I think they would. However, I think in this case, there would have been a lot more problems if the other company had launched a, the same product and call it Refreshers than yes. something quite different. Mm. Yes. And maybe intellectual property law has not yet extended to cover suites with names. I think it's a bit more of a problem that, um, for instance, there are two fairly high-profile films called Crash. Mm. albeit it's not like one of them is a jolly u-rated film that you would be watching with your kids and then it turns out to be a car wound sex fest no well no but actually that would in a way perversely you'd think that would make it easier because then you'd never confuse yeah. the two crashes yeah whereas actually they are both films for adults aren't they of yeah. a different sort one of them's worthy and one of them's vile mm. also when I, was, when I was young i used to think god isn't it a problem that so many bands have called their album unplugged <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Hello, Helen and Ollie. This is Dave from Snagger Today. Helen and Ollie, answer me this. When you write a cheque, you know, to to pay someone, you know, for something, you have to put down how much you're paying them in words. And then you have to put it down again. But you have to put it in words. You have to write it 12 in T-W-E-L. You have to write that down, and then you have to put the numbers in as well. You have to put down the figures, what you're paying as well. Why do you have to do that? All right. Bye. My mother had always intimated to me that the reason why this was done is so that uh, it's to protect you against... uh, check uh, forgers and naughty people so it would be easy to slip in another digit if yeah. you were just writing in the numbers but then why not just have it in the words why have the words and the numbers ollie because the numbers are easier to read aren't they they're quicker yes so uh, the bank teller the bank clerk can look down at the check as you give it to them and they can see the digits and they can type them in quickly but you can they can glance across and check that the intention was the numbers that they're typing in um, so that's why you have both. And it is, yeah, I mean, it was actually a fairly recent development in the history of checks because um, checks in their earliest form go back all the way to the Romans and the Ooh. idea of writing down IOU on a piece of paper and signing it, you know, quite quite a basic idea. It, they evolved over the centuries and actually the, the whole idea of, of writing down the numbers in words was only as recent as the 19th century that people started to do that. Um, but it was just because they started becoming the predominant way to pay each other through ah. banks and they started becoming personalised. So you'd have the name of the bank on, you'd have the, the account number on the bottom and yeah. stuff. And they became the sort of thing where someone might make the kind of transaction like buying a house where it really would be a problem if someone put a one and a comma in front of it right, rather than turning up with uh, their knickers full of ingots <laughs> exactly <laughs> there was that weird thing with checks where you you you, you don't say 100 pounds in the, in the textbook you say, you say 100 pounds only yes, yes that's weird isn't yeah. it or sometimes people put 100 pounds exactly 
Well, it's so oh, that, is that what they to did? indicate That's, and no pence, isn't it? I, but, yeah. but then if you're doing check fraud just to get an extra 99 pence, that's pathetic. <laughs> there was a kid at school who I remember owed me money because I'd bought tickets to go to the cinema or something when we were 17. Yeah. And I said to everyone, right, you owe me whatever it was, £8.50. And he took about six weeks to pay me back. And I had to chase him, you know, which gets a bit embarrassing. A pound of flesh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Helen. Uh, but I said to him, you know, please, can you pay me today? And he wrote out a cheque by hand, as in not a printed cheque from a bank, but wrote the whole thing yeah. by hand. Wrote, Bank of Scotland, account number, blah, blah. Sort really? Code, blah, blah. I hereby pay the person, blah, blah. And he put a little box, which he wrote by hand. And he goes, well, there you are. They have to accept that. It's true. And I was like, I'm not going to take... I'm 17 years old. I'm not going to go to the bank did and you, present Did this. you try it? No. Of course I'm not going to do that. That'd be amazing. And he was, he was being such a knob. Like, he had a chequebook. <laughs> he was just well, like, oh, well, technically, they have to accept that. Wow. Well, he's not allowed on Ollie Man's cinema trips anymore, he's is he? He's on the shit list. Oh, he is, yeah. Down and lonely, life is so confusing. I need some answers, preferably amusing. Now I find a podcast that will suit. I listen to Helen and Ollie on my half hour commute. Here's a question from Luke in Fife, who says, During my first ever trip to Disneyland Paris as a child, do you remember your first time, Ollie? Uh, yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> Can't remember the worst time. Because <laughs> they're all amazing, because it's magic. Uh, uh, yeah. I, like most of the other children, says Luke, tried to draw the almighty Excalibur from its stone. Yeah. Without lack of trying on my part, I failed to do so. Yeah. But that got me thinking, can the sword actually be drawn from the stone? And if you manage... Do you get to keep the sword? Do you get recognised as King Arthur reborn within the magical kingdom? <laughs> Ollie, answer me this. Is it actually possible to draw Excalibur in Disneyland? Well, my initial response, based on my own experience and instinct, was no. Of course it's not possible to draw the, the sword from the stone because, just health and safety-wise, mm. like oh, if yeah, a kid right. comes up to it and pulls really, really hard on it and is able to dislodge it, then every mm. kid's going to try and do that. Some of them can dislocate their shoulders, some of them can be waving a sword around. Yes. They're all going to feel entitled that they can then keep the sword as a souvenir. You're going to get through yeah. a lot of swords. You're implicitly saying that some of the children are magic and others aren't, and the mm. whole point of Disney is that everyone feels magic because they all paid their hundred dollars it's very complicated mm. easier to just make it so that no of course because only arthur or merlin can draw the sword from the yeah. easy right okay but then i looked into it online and i can't find anything written about disneyland paris but in disneyland in california the happiest place on earth there did used to be a ceremony every day in the park Mm-hmm. And by ceremony, they mean sort of slightly chintzy stage show yeah. where Merlin or, you know, actor playing Merlin mm-hmm. would come along and select a child to come and do it. And one of them would be able to draw the sword from the stone, at which point there'd be a kind of like a light show. And apparently, uh, I know that Luke says in his question, did you get to uh, keep the sword and get recognised as King Arthur Reborn? Not quite. Mm-hmm. But apparently, traditionally, you did get to be King of Disneyland for Yay! the day. Oh, wow. Which is quite cool. And did that mean you got to pass a lot of laws? <laughs> Yeah, you got to you got to put out pest control on Mickey. Um, so anyway, 
there are then in these forums lots of speculation as to how the mechanic worked that enabled the sword to detach from the stone at that exact moment Uh, because all day the sword Mm. is in the stone and people are having photo opportunities going trying to tug it according to personal testimony by someone who was king of Disneyland for the day so I think we can believe them yeah Um, Uh, drunk on power don't they (laughs) they were remarking upon the fact that when they withdrew the sword they noticed that it was wet on the end and reflecting upon this later in life as a scientist Mm. they said they realised therefore that this was a hydraulic mechanism uh, and that it was actually being powered by water Uh, and then there's speculation as to who is doing the controlling Uh, in this particular forum that I was on like I say particularly geeky and uniquely American there were people who were saying well I know someone who once played Merlin and he was controlling the sword by remote control in his pocket Hmm. then someone else said no 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 I've been to Fantasyland and I've seen the sound op press a button and if you stand in a certain place at the back of uh, Mr. Toad's crazy ride (laughs) you can see the light go from red to green and that's when the sword comes out and the sound stops operating it and then someone else said no 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 there's a janitor who stands by a blue rock look out for a blue rock in Fantasyland it's different to all the other rocks and this is a special rock that's got a key in it and the janitor flicks a switch to release it this is like a JFK assassination (laughs) (laughs) there was a guy on the grassy knoll and there was a hidden mechanism it just goes to show that even Disney aficionados even people who want to ruin the magic for themselves even people who know people who have worked there cannot ruin the magic they can't agree on how to ruin the magic exactly. nice, isn't it? do you know what I mean, I've never been to a Disney but I wonder whether I wouldn't enjoy it because all this sort of Forced. No, you would enjoy it because it's amazing. But all the forced street theatre, Ollie, sounds an awful lot like no, no. the Disney version of the Black Country Living Museum. No, no, no. Because you d- I you- can't imagine it being as good as the Black Country Living Museum. <laughs> the rides, especially. <laughs> going down into that mine shaft in a, a print- Look, a printing press. No, because you don't. I'd, I've only just found out about this detail of the stage show by the Sword in the Stone. I've been to Disneyland like seven times. So you can ignore the stage shows. Not only ignore it, there is so much to feast on that you wouldn't even notice it unless you've been there for like three days. And you don't have to hang out in the street with someone dressed as uh, Rapunzel or whatever. It depends on your definition she's, of hangout. She's not very Disney, is she? Sorry. Someone, well, someone maybe you would be hanging no out way. with Rapunzel because she wants to be one of the regular characters, Helen, but she won't be because she's a slag. She's not, <laughs> she's not Pocahontas or Cinderella, is she? She's not a slag. She's stuck up a tower with no one. That's true. She's very much the opposite of a slag. She she's wants a- to put it out, though. She just can't. Maybe she's uh, she sends a lot of letters to prisoners. Anyway, um, I couldn't help. She can empathise with them. I couldn't help noticing on my recent, my most recent visit to Disney Park, which I admit was Florida. So again, complicating the story still. Was the magic still there as an adult with no children with you? Yes, obviously, yes. Um, even more so than having children with you because you had time to do what you wanted and go on all the roller coasters. Yeah, I didn't have to go to the toilet every <laughs> 20 minutes <laughs> yeah. and whining um, dickhead. But Should I was have gone before we queued. I was keeping an eye out last time I went to Disney World because, you know, we were doing the podcast. So uh, if my accountant is listening, definitely was for research purposes that I went. Talking about it now. Um, Inspiration trip. <laughs> that's right. Um, so whilst I was there, I was keeping an eye out for this kind of detail. I noticed, I mean, it was notable. Mm that films like Sword in the Stone, the ones from the 60s and the 70s, Robin Hood, they'd gone. Wind in the Willows, that had gone. Even Pinocchio, I think, has gone now in New Fantasyland, and there's very much a focus on uh, things like Nemo and Ariel and characters that younger kids know. Well, they're better dolls, aren't they, Nemo and Ariel? Whereas... I the think doll it, of Geppetto, not so cool. <laughs> well, you say that, but the little cat, Geppetto's cat, was a cool soft toy. I, I had that. I remember. Yeah. But, well, this is it. We can't remember because we're too young, so they're absolutely... They, they know what they're doing, that corporation. They know how to target children. They do. Uh, and they've got rid of... As far as I could tell, they've got rid of all the Sword in the Stone references and replaced them with more contemporary ones. So it might well be that there's no longer a Sword in the Stone at Disneyland Paris, even. It's been replaced by a giant Buzz Lightyear anyway. Oh. Sorry. Well... 
on that very uh, deflating <laughs> note, it's time to end the show and go away and think for a week you about will how, never be Merlin. how sad and empty the world now seems. But there is light because in a week we will return with another episode of Answer Me This. So please send us your questions via email, phone or Skype and all our contact details are on our website. Answermethispodcast.com And if we choose your question, like Arthur revealing the sword <laughs> from the stone, uh, then you'll feel just as magic as if you'd been that lucky child selected yeah. in the uh, pyrotechnic show. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye.